Welcome to the pilot episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast. My name is Nathaniel E. Baker. I am the host of this little experiment. The concept here is actually quite simple. There are four acts. Act one, I take an item that has been accepted as conventional wisdom or that is viewed as conventional wisdom in the marketplace, in the economy, in financial markets. I then introduce our guest who through his thesis points out why this conventional wisdom is inaccurate and wrong and what may be mispriced about it. We then have a short break allowing us to identify our sponsors. Uh, shout out to friends and other affiliates. Uh, let people know how to get in touch with us and, and other silly little things like that. We then proceed with act three where I attempt to poke holes in the contrarian's thesis. So I will then kind of try to play devil's advocate where I ask the guest uh, questions that you know, may indicate where his or her thesis is wrong and where the conventional wisdom may in fact be right after all. Finally, in Act 4, we discuss actionable, concrete actionable investing ideas that emanate from the contrarian view. You know, stocks, bonds, indexes, things like that, with the important caveat that nothing we say here should be viewed or construed or accepted as investment advice. Okay, so let's get to it. The inverted yield curve. We've heard about this by now. As we know, the inverted yield curve predicts a recession 10 times out of 10. Once this happens, it, we're basically on borrowed time where economic growth is concerned. We typically have a time window from 12 to 18 months before the recession hits. This is all according to the conventional wisdom. But what if it's wrong? What if there are other better ways of gauging economic risk? What if there are other metrics that investors should look to to guide them for the next stage of the economic cycle? Okay, so joining me now is Barry Knapp of Ironside Macroeconomics. Barry is a macro strategist who has a pretty unique background in investment management, capital markets, and economic research. He's done some principal trading in equity derivatives as well. He has, uh, he's acknowledged for his, his unconventional path to strategy. Barry Knapp of Ironside's Macroeconomics. Tell us about the, this, why you don't think the yield curve is perhaps the best, the best gauge. And sure. Talk us through your thesis. Sure. So um, to begin with, the, an inverted yield curve has preceded every post-war recession. However, there have been a couple of, uh, call them false positives, where right. the yield curve is inverted and then a recession has not resulted. The other episodes where the curve inverted, 1966, mm -hmm. uh, 1998, 2005, uh, late 2005, you also had very low term premium. And right. so there was no evidence that the inversion of the yield curve was really um, having any demand side effects on the actual availability of credit okay. because that term premium was so low. So that's at the core of our argument that this is a bit miscast. Now, furthermore, I'll, I'll make a little more you know here and now argument about this as well, which is if you think about what happened in the aftermath of the December FOMC meeting, investors got quite incensed about that last 25 basis point rate hike. The stock market had a 
less than five day sell off of 6% hmm. that had you reacted to that and sold, you would have missed the subsequent 20 plus percent rebound. Right. The real uh, trade at that time was to fade the Fed and understand that that 25 basis points was um, um, was not that debilitating. It didn't tighten financial conditions too much. There was a whole other dynamic going on with the um, with the markets and the reason that we had the liquidity related sell off that uh, doesn't reside solely with the Fed. The ECB and BOJ played a big role in sure. this. But that notwithstanding, the real appropriate trade then was to fade the initial reaction. The same thing appears to be occurring in the Treasury market this go around. So if you think about what the Fed said at the last FOMC meeting that triggered that rally in Treasuries down to nearly 230 on 10-year yields, um, the market interpreted that as forward guidance, meaning the Fed was not going to raise rates for the balance of the year. They might be done for the entire cycle. The next move could be a cut. Hmm. Chairman uh, Powell was very specific in saying the committee did not vote on the summary of economic projections. That Hmm. is the dots. There Hmm. was no vote on that. Hmm. That's just their expectation. But the market still took it as a reintroduction of forward guidance. The ECB did reintroduce forward guidance. Draghi said it explicitly. The Fed did not. They did also say that as we, they had, you know, pre-forecasted, if you will, they are going to end the asset purchases in September. But what they also said about the asset purchases is they are going to change the composition of the portfolio from a combination of treasuries and mortgages to all treasuries. Now, that will have significant duration effects as well. Um, If they do succeed in that, and I'm suspicious that they'll ever unwind their entire uh, mortgage-backed securities portfolio, what that would effectively do is return the biggest source of interest rate volatility risk back to the private sector that the Fed had taken on their own balance sheet and didn't hedge. Mm. That is mortgage prepayment risk. Yeah. This morning, we received the Mortgage Bankers Association Refinancing Index. It's up 38% year on year. Mm. If you hold mortgage bonds, you're losing those bonds. They're getting called away. That's mm. convexity or volatility yeah. risk. Um, when the Fed bought 40% of the outstanding stock of mortgages and were buying more than 100% of the total net supply in 2012 and 13, and then held that, even till now, they took that risk out of the market and stopped hedging it. So the whole structural relationship between volatility and rates changed significantly. So the Fed will be now returning it back to the private sector, which will make the market more volatility. That's not directional in and of itself, but mortgages can have significantly longer duration than treasuries do if if rates go up. Uh, Furthermore, They've also said that the next debate that they're going to have is the duration of their uh, outstanding stock of treasuries. Okay. And so right now, they're roughly two years longer in duration than at the outstanding stock of treasuries. They'd like to at least bring it back to the treasury, uh, you know, the, the same maturity schedule as the, the outstanding stock of treasuries. They may even want to shorten it further. Mm. Now, that would mean selling longer-term securities or letting those mature and buying shorter-term securities. Again, that's a yield-steepening event. And in fact, even in the aftermath of that meeting, the very longest part of the yield curve, uh, five-year note treasuries to 30-year treasury bonds, steepened out considerably Mm. and has steepened out quite a bit this year. So has forward curves. The two-year, 10-year, two-year forward curve has been steepening steadily since last 
uh, late last year. For the reasons I explained, the central bank role in all this makes the, the entire indicator far less efficacious. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is really difficult to argue that there is a um, part of the economy that is truly impacted by this, other than the housing market, right. which did react to it. Um, housing has not been a driver of economic growth this business cycle. Mm-hmm. This is the only cycle since World War II where housing never had a one to two year period where it contributed over 1% to GDP growth. Right. So it's hard to argue that we could suddenly have a housing bust right. since we just had a 75 year flood in housing when right. we never had any boom this right. cycle. Right, right, so right. Uh, all, all of those things conspire to mean that the curve is, is um, not particularly efficacious. It's not debilitating for growth. Right. And um, uh, I can come back to the impact on the banking system. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to also ask, you said that in one of your research pieces that actually there were certain parts of the equity market that were better harbingers of economic growth than the treasury or fixed income markets. What exactly that <clears throat> there? Yeah, that's it. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go back in time just a little bit to set some um, uh precedent or, or perspective on this, which is, so the chart I probably got sent 10 times a week from 2010 to 2013, when the Fed was going through yeah. their non-crisis period of QE, was a chart of the Fed's balance sheet and the S&P 500. Right. And it was one of these, gotcha, see the market's going up because of um, Fed buying of government securities. It turns out the way that the that quantitative easing portfolio balance channel and Fed speak is supposed to work is it's supposed to drive money out the risk continuum, drive people out of risk-free securities into higher risk securities. Um, And that should compress the so-called equity risk premium, which is the earnings yield less the real 10-year treasury yield. Okay, right. right. That did happen from fall of 2010 through the tapered tantrum in 2013 for the parts of the stock market that look like a bond. Mm. So for utilities, for REITs, for any of the bond surrogates, there was a small compression of that risk premium and uh, AT&T's PE went to 20, dividend yields on utilities went to three and a half percent because it created this massive reach for yield. However, for the economically sensitive cyclical sectors, the equity risk premium went up 150 basis points. So the market implied risk to growth actually increased rather than decreased. The stocks went up, but they right. went up because earnings went up, right. not because of Fed policy. So okay. if you then look at what's happening this year and consider the same dynamic, the best performing sectors are not utilities. They're not the bond surrogates. They've done reasonably well, as you would expect, given their correlation of bonds. But it's been industrials, yeah. consumer discretionary. Right. Small caps, right. all the really economically sensitive sectors. Right. So it's not just the return of the S&P 500. If you look at a sector level, if you look at the types of companies doing well, it would tell you that the growth outlook is improving. Okay, I want to I want to ask you more about that in a minute. Um, let's just take a first a, a real quick break to remind people while why we're here, which is to record the pilot episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast. I'm Nathaniel Baker. Uh, This will not be widely disseminated. I'm really just going to be sending this to a few friends, family, and others, though I will probably post it on social media. Uh, So if you have to get in touch with me, you probably know how already. Um, I am on Twitter at Nat Baker, N-A-T-B-A-K-E-R. And Barry, tell us about yourself and your firm uh, while I have you. Sure. Um, 
So I spent nearly 25 years at the combination of Lehman and Barclays. I was in the equity derivatives group for quite a long time, a principal trading role, and then I became equity strategist uh, just prior to the Lehman bankruptcy and held that role for six years at Barclays. I moved on to BlackRock to uh, become the effective director of research for fundamental fixed income, uh, then spent two years at Guggenheim Securities as the head of macro and public policy and have now started my own uh, entity called Ironsides Macroeconomics. Right. My research can be found at ironsidesmacro.substack.com. Uh, um, it's a subscription-based model. I uh, welcome all of you to sign up for the free trial, and hopefully if you you like it, you'll decide to become a paid subscriber. Mm -hmm. um, the fee is for an individual is $999 a year. I think it's pretty approachable. Um, there'll be new products. I'll, I, I'll be introducing a two-minute um, audio summary of my weekly note. Um, I'll be having a client presentation uh, available. I write a weekly and then I'll write interweek comments when uh, there's something that warrants immediate attention. So cool. again, that's uh, Ironsides Macro ironsidesmacro.substack.com. There you have it. Okay, Barry, now I wanted to, this is the part of the podcast where I'm supposed to attempt, uh, you know, to um, play devil's advocate a little bit um, with some of the themes that we've been talking about. One thing I did want to ask you about, and you touched on it in the last segment, is global trade, okay? You have China now noticeably slowing down economically. You have Europe Germany is on the precipice of a recession. Brexit, you know, let's not even go there. Obviously, that's going to be a big mess of some sort for the UK economy and, and probably for all of Europe. So, yeah, which are the two biggest trading partners, basically, Asia and Europe, and they are both slowing. Is that not a bad sign for the US economy? And, you know, you know, the old adage that if the U.S. catches a cold, emerging markets sneeze. It's actually the other way around, right? <laughs> you know, the old adage that if the That's U.S. Right. sneezes, emerging markets catch a cold. More like the flu, but. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, <laughs> this isn't so much about emerging markets, but these big trading partners of the U.S. and Europe and Asia, both of which are slowing. And but you think that the U.S. economy can weather that? I, I do. And I think it's important um, to to. Um, step back a little bit in the sense that, um, as I said a bit earlier, we do think that globalization is somewhat in reverse. This idea of exploiting cheap labor in the rest of the world as a, uh, a way to lower your costs is um, uh, we've really run out of bodies. If you look at dependency ratios of people, of places like China, certainly Korea, Japan, Germany, um, they have run out of bodies. We used to say that the Japanese and Koreans are going extinct. Mm. Um, so there will be more about investing in capital from this point forward. So I, I think that if you're a country like Germany, that you've set up your business model dependent upon selling capital goods to China, Germany is going to have to go through a restructuring like they did with their labor laws in 2005. Right. I would suggest now the best thing that they could do would be a VAT tax and income tax cut to try and spur domestic consumption, which would help some of the European imbalances and drive the economies in places like Italy and the like. 
Um, I think they'll get to that begrudgingly. They certainly have the fiscal um, wherewithal to be able to do it. They don't really run deficits yeah. in Germany. Um, but on China specifically, and, and I have to be careful here because I'm a perennial China bear in the sense that I'm, uh, I believe strongly in malinvestment, as the Austrian economic school would talk about, that is state-directed capital uh, is exceptionally inefficient. Mm-hmm. So from the middle of 2014 through the beginning of 2016, China had a hard landing. Okay. Their state-owned enterprises, cement, uh, steel, mm. those companies saw their revenues plunge. Mm. The, the revenues and earnings of the Shanghai Composite, which is heavily oriented towards state-owned enterprises, went from a plus 10% annualized growth rate to minus 20%, mm. an absolute plunge. That is what caused the commodity bear market. That's right. what sent Brazil into the biggest recession they've had in some 50 years. Mm. So there was a big negative impulse to the rest of the world from China's heavy industry hard landing. They still haven't worked off those capacity issues. Right. They're going to have to work through them. The next part of China's economy that's going through something of a hard landing is their export sector. Mm. That's what we're witnessing now. That doesn't have the same negative impulse as the heavy industry uh, collapse and in investment did because they're not buying commodities from the rest of the world. They're actually trying to sell stuff to the rest of the world. But so, isn't that the ultimate gauge of economic growth globally? Is there exports? I mean, China exports everything to everybody. Imports. You think? It's their imports. Okay. Yeah. So if you look at Chinese ordinary imports, that's a much better gauge of activity. It weakened decidedly, mm-hmm. but it started to recover a little bit. What's also interesting, and I'm always skeptical of Chinese data. We all know it, it ends in zero a bit too much to be believable. 6.7%. N- nevertheless, yeah. if you look at the purchasing managers indices this month, what you saw was the small enterprise index jumped four points to get back to the almost to the 50 level. The medium size and entity uh, PMI jumped three points to get back to almost the 50 level. And the large industry barely moved. Mm. Furthermore, the private sector PMI uh, performed well. Also, China has been trying the policy uh, stimulus they've been trying to provide is sub- is at least targeted at small and medium enterprises, right? spurring domestic demand. So if you can believe those PMIs, they may be having some degree of success with it. Now, the reason I, I, I tried to preface all that by saying I'm a perennial bearer is they still haven't paid the piper for all the you know 50% excess capacity in steel yeah. and cement and all these other heavy industries and too much investment in exporters. There will be a cost for that, but it may be a you know, we may have gone through the worst of the shocks hmm. related to China back in 14 to 16 that we'll see in the next, say, decade or so. Uh, so it may just not have the same negative impulse that okay. that did. Furthermore, a point um, worth noting is, you know, every major global recession has started in the U.S. We still are the biggest source of final demand. Yeah. And when you consider the position of the consumer right now, um, Probably the most shocking number of all of 2018 was when they did the five-year benchmark revision to GDP last July, and the savings rate was revised from 3.2% to 7.8%. And turns out savings has been at 8% pretty much this whole business Mm -hmm. cycle. This is the only business cycle since World War II where the household sector was deleveraging five years into the business cycle and kept deleveraging through the cycle. 
The prior one was the 1960s. Mm. It turns out that at the time was the longest business cycle the U.S. had ever had by a long shot. Mm. So the fact that the household sector is deleveraging still this late into the business cycle, the savings rate is high, income growth is picking up. Other than the government deciding to tax their way out of debt, I'm not sure how the consumer drives us into recession. Now, that could be yeah. a story for post-2020 election. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but right now, yeah. you'd have to think that those, you know, the slowing of global exports is not enough of a shock to drive okay. the U.S. into okay. recession. And likewise, any tariffs that were, I guess, we've already placed on China for the same reason, right? Uh, interesting. Uh, it's very interesting. And by the way, the book I would recommend on trade policy, if anyone hasn't read it, is called Clashing Over Commerce by a Dartmouth professor, Doug Irwin. And um, it's a history of U.S. trade policy from the Revolutionary War forward. A oh, wow. Fascinating, pretty wide fascinating book. Uh, so I'll, I'll give a couple of anecdotes about that just to draw people into the, the episode. One is that the Smoot-Hawley tariffs only raised the average tariff in the U.S. from 30% to 35%. At the time, though, the tariffs were specific dollar numbers. So when deflation hit as a result of Mellon, uh, Treasury Secretary Mellon, allowing a third of the banking system to go down, deflation drove that dollar tariff from 30% to 60%. But still, net exports in that time were only a third of what they are today. It's 15% of the U.S. economy today. It was 5% then. That's not the proximate cause for the Great Depression. Furthermore, the narrative that the U.S. set a low-tariff environment in the aftermath of World War II is also not true. Mm -hmm. Turns out they only managed to convince the Brits to lower tariffs by some 5% across their empire, um, which was sort of still in place after World yeah. War II. Yeah. And, um, Commonwealth, whatever, But yeah. post-war inflation is what drove those tariffs down. Now, we've had two major uh, trade wars in the last 50 years. 1971, when mm -hmm. Nixon took us off the gold standard yep. because the recalcitrant uh, Japanese refused to revalue their currency, which is how Bretton Woods was supposed to be structured. Mm. And eventually he pulled us off the gold standard, told the Japanese you couldn't redeem yen for you know, gold any longer. Um, and the Japanese agreed to an 18% revaluation of their currency. Mm -hmm. The Germans went along. Um, 1985's Plaza Accord was effectively the same thing. Mm. So this is not all that unprecedented either. Um, mm. Mm. I've, I've been arguing that currency will undoubtedly be part of the uh, the final agreement as it was in 71 and 85, partially because that's the path of least resistance. Right. But it does create a confidence shock in the rest of the world. Sure. Um, and I think that's what we've seen right. is that confidence shock has impacted capital investment in China, Germany, and so on and so forth. Right. So I'm not saying the channels don't exist, that they right. don't have broader implications. Um, it's just not enough of a shock to drive the U.S. into uh, an economic contraction. Got it. And now what about the opportunities that this brings? So you've been um, pretty bullish on bank stocks for a while. I should preface this by saying that absolutely nothing we say should be construed as investment advice. But yeah, so bank stocks, but what other areas are there that you that you might be eyeing as, as potential opportunities as we look at growth being stronger than the market and the conventional wisdom is maybe pricing in right now. Right. Well, let's let's start with just a little bit of explanation around the bank stock call, which is I was underweight the banking sector for my entire tenure as Barclays equity strategist. 
I finally upgraded the group when the Treasury reform proposal was released in the summer of 2017. And that core idea is that the combination of Fed asset purchases and all the government securities that sat on bank balance sheets as a consequence of two things, Basel risk-based capital requirements right. to put zero risk weights on treasuries and much higher risk weights on private sector assets and the Fed purchases of treasuries meant that treasury holdings were growing when the Fed started unwinding their balance sheet in the fall of 2017, were growing at five or 6% and core loan growth was fairly tepid at two or three. Since that time or through the course of 2018, securities holdings actually fell. Cash holdings fell by 20%, but commercial and industrial lending into the private sector for capital investment uh, is growing at 11%. Okay. So you've got this big asset mix shift in lending portfolios that was the primary catalyst for a significant jump in return on assets and return on equity in the fourth quarter. Return on equity went above 10% for the first time this business cycle for the S&P 500 banks index or financials index. So they're now earning their cost of capital. They're no longer destroying capital. And this is in, in some ways, there's a pretty good precedent for this with respect to the yield curve as well, <clears throat> which is that very aggressive Fed 1994 rate tightening mm -hmm. cycle when they took the Fed funds rate from 3% to 6% in a year, the yield curve twos, tens went from 180 basis points to zero. Yeah. Greenspan gave a speech at the New York Economics Club about how we might have a recession mm. in May of, of 1995, yet the bank stocks, uh, bank sector, financial sector went up 60% in 1995 yeah. because it was loan growth and asset growth mm. that actually drove returns higher. Um, and so, to me, that's the same dynamic here. Now, when the banks uh, sectors, banks reported in January, that was a catalyst for a pretty sustainable rally in that group through January and February. They were amongst the best performers, regional banks right. even more so. It was only when you know, the Fed held this meeting and the market interpreted it as forward guidance that the group just got a real risk-off event. But that mm. risk-off event is the opportunity because Indeed. while the stocks may react in the short run to uh, movements in the curve, their fundamentals are being driven by this asset mix yeah. change and asset growth. And so for me, um, that's your, you know, that's your window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Now, I would, I guess that the other group that immediately comes to mind is if I'm right about my general economic outlook in the U.S., that dynamism has improved and that we are getting capital spending, we're getting stronger labor dynamism, productivity growth has picked up from 1-1 one, 10-year one, trend uh, to 1-8 in 2018. If those trends continue on because of capital deepening and because of in improved labor market turnover and dynamism, that bodes pretty well for small caps in general too. Okay. And they had a significant outperform, they've outperformed for the year, though on a beta adjusted basis, they've lost some of that outperformance in the last you know, three, four weeks or so. But that pause in their rally is probably an opportunity as well, because I would expect you know, core domestic demand to continue to be strong, even if the rest of the world struggles with the export channel, small caps are not particularly leveraged to that. So right. those are the two that really okay. come to mind. Okay, that's great. Not to mention being uh, having bear steepers on in the treasury market. 
yeah, right. betting on higher rates for sure. Right, yeah, right. Okay, so is there anything that you're looking at that could potentially upset this whole Apple card of stable and dynamic growth? Um, what are some of your favorite metrics that you watch uh, outside of the ordinary? And then also, you know, how far are we from a recession in the U.S.? Um, so first, uh, I'll answer your first question first. Um, I would say with respect to the labor market, our preferred measure, and it comes from a paper that was presented at Jackson Hole back in 2014 that we absolutely loved because at the time we had ended extended unemployment benefits. And so we were yeah. looking to see whether um, the end of those extended unemployment benefits would create incentives for lower wage workers to come back to the workforce. And a paper was presented by a Chicago professor named Stephen Davis and another professor, Halta Wanger. Um, I may have gotten his last name wrong, so I apologize. Um, nonetheless, the paper, what the paper looked at was a measure called worker reallocation. Now, worker reallocation is the quarterly change as a percent of the labor force in all hiring and uh, separations, both voluntary, meaning quits, and involuntary, meaning people that were fired. It, it's kind of a shocking number when you when you step back from it. Every month we get fascinated whether the late net change in employment is 100,000, 200,000, or yeah. 300,000 against a backdrop of 130 million private sector workers. Um, however, that labor market turnover is actually 25% right now, meaning 25% of the labor market turns over every single quarter. Which is just a fantastic number. What's the, histo- <clears throat> what's the historical? If you if you if you understand that forty percent of that, and I'll come come back and directly answer your question in one second, which is forty uh, percent of that is leisure and hospitality and retail. Okay. So that makes that sense be, that it would yeah. be that fluid. Um, that number was twenty nine percent when the Jolts job opening and labor turnover survey began in December of two thousand. It fell to twenty percent by two thousand and ten. It increased only a quarter of 1% on average in 10, 11, 12, and 13. Then when we ended extended unemployment benefits, the year that these professors presented their paper in August at the Kansas City Fed Jackson Hole Symposium, it jumped 214 basis points. Mm. It backed off in 16 amidst election year uncertainty and surged uh, better than 120 basis points last year. Now, the key to this measure is if... Wages are going up as a consequence of more turnover, people going to get jobs they want that pay more. Right. That drives productivity higher. Right. If wages go up because we the unemployment rate goes down, other measures of diminished labor market slack, that drives productivity lower. Right. So my argument that the reason that wages went up last year is that turnover went up. And productivity happened to go up as well, which is some evidence that I may actually be correct about all this. So that turnover measure is is really the key driver of how to think about the labor market in our view. Fi- one final point on that, um, on uh, another measure I would look at is when you think about capital investment, the tax bill did very little for equipment investment in terms of the change in the effective tax rate. What it did do, though, was it significantly lowered the cost of capital for investing in software and mm-hmm. research and development. Mm. That's what boomed last year. Oh. That's what will drive productivity growth. Mm. Now, we don't get a lot of good information on that through the course of the quarter other than from a, co- a corporate level. Mm. But that, 
to me, is really the key driver of whether we have further productivity uh, gains going forward. Okay, very uh, interesting. So lastly, we're, we're out of time here, but lastly, how far are we from a U.S. recession? So right now, I, I've sort of penciled one in for 2021, and mm -hmm. the idea is, um, we'll see, other things could, could evolve between now and then, but the idea is that um, um, at that point, the entitlement-related debt in the U.S. will be rising significantly again. So not okay. only will we have the deficit going up, we will likely have the debt starting to rise as well. Right. Recently, the deficit's gone up, but the debt's been somewhat stable. Invariably, uh, governments don't like to cut spending as their way to stabilize the debt. They prefer to try and raise taxes. Uh -huh. So were we to have some grand bargain to raise taxes on mm. individuals in 2021 after the election, that to me is a pretty pro highly probable, reasonably probable way that we would uh, make a policy mistake that drove us into recession. So I actually think it's more likely we have a fiscal policy mistake than a monetary policy mistake. Okay. I mean, politically, that does not seem very feasible, especially if there's a Republican administration still in 2021. Well, if we say? had an ideological uh, Republican administration, and it depends on the setup of the government and how they decide to, to deal with it. Remember that the the very tax bill that we had this go around on the corporate level really matched the contours of what we thought would actually drive capital spending. But in the individual side, it was a little more than uh, wealth redistribution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so yeah. a populist administration could easily agree to of course, raise taxes. Of course, yeah. So, and even if it is a Republican administration, as, as you know, it's not unprecedented for a Republican president to raise taxes. See George H.W. Bush in, what was it, 1990? Read my lips. Exactly, yeah. Okay, that's we're out of time here. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Barry Knapp for agreeing to be the guest on this pilot episode. I very much appreciate his time and commitment, and I really enjoyed our talk. Barry, tell us one more time how we can find your research. Uh, ironsidesmacro.substack.com. Cool. At one point, you may want to buy a domain, but <laughs> another topic for another day. Okay, thanks so much, everybody, and um, uh, let me know what you think of this. And we look forward to speaking to everybody again next time. Cool. I do have a